Blog Talk Radio.
information on the current situation in Ethiopia as well. Sudan is accusing uh, is, and is claiming uh, that the Ethiopian National Defense Forces has launched an attack in the border areas of its territory. And a film project in West Africa is examining the experiences of migrants in recent years. In the second hour, we listened to the official response of the president of, the, of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, on the detection of Omicron and the travel bans imposed on the entire region. We then review uh, some of the most pressing and burning issues impacting the African continent. Finally, we look back on the legacy of the late Cuban president, Fidel Castro, on the fifth anniversary of his transition. We will listen to two rare archival audio files on the Bay of Pigs fiasco of 1961 and an interview uh, with the Cuban premier uh, with Lisa Howard of ABC News, which was conducted in 1963. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, in the East African state of Tanzania. We'll listen to the Moral Girl Jazz Band and Wana Wachiza Mufunliso Wa Muziki. Let's listen in.
bora tufanye nini Tufanye kazi kwa nguvu moja tuinue uchumi kwa haraka Tupaia wote tusiwe wavivu kwa ajili ya maisha yetu Yawe bora tufanye nini Tufanye kazi kwa nguvu moja tuinue uchumi kwa
kufanya mie wako naliao Kila nikuwa na pombenzi sina furaha Ebujirekebishe penzi wangu tabia hiyo Kila nikuwa na pombenzi sina furaha Ebujirekebishe penzi wangu tabia hiyo
<clears throat> Welcome back, and uh, we're listening to uh, the More Girl Jazz Band, Wanawe Chezua, Mfuluzuzi, Wa Muziki. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program, and our lead story uh, deals uh, with the headline article on the front page of today's uh, Sunday edition of the New York Times, uh, written by Benjamin Mueller and Declan Wass. It says that nations in Southern Africa protested bitterly yesterday, Saturday, as more of the world's wealthiest countries cut them off from travel, renewing a debate over border closures uh, from the earliest days of the coronavirus pandemic and compounding the problems facing poorly vaccinated countries. A new coronavirus variant called Omicron, first detected in Botswana, uh, but uh, governments are on edge after South Africa announced a surge of cases this week plunging countries into the most uncertain moment of the pandemic since the highly contagious Delta variant took hold uh, this spring. As in the early days of Delta, uh, political alarm spread quickly across the world, with officials trading blame over how the failures of the global vaccination effort were allowing the virus to mutate, even as researchers warned uh, that the true threat of the new variant was not yet clear. Uh, bearing a worrying number of mutations that researchers fear could make it spread easily. Omicron was spotted on Saturday in patients in Britain, Germany, and Italy, leaving in its wake what scientists estimated to be thousands of cases in Southern Africa and tens of uh, or hundreds or more globally. One nation after another shut its doors to Southern Africa, even as they spurned public health measures, the scientists said, were far more urgently needed to take on the new variant. Australia, Thailand, and Sri Lanka were among the latest countries on uh, yesterday uh, to join the United States, Britain, and the European Union in banning travelers from South Africa and nearby countries. And um, uh, later on in our program, we're going to hear uh, from uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa uh, in his opposition along with uh, others uh, throughout the Southern Africa region uh, in regard to the blanket travel bans that have been imposed uh, almost overnight. In other news, uh, in regard to the situation in the Horn of Africa state of uh, Ethiopia and the international campaign of no more, uh, citing a Western conspiracy and neocolonialism, in uh, other states, uh, chanting slogans like no more Western conspiracy and neocolonialism on Ethiopia, uh, Eritrea, Somalia, Ivory Coast, and uh, this took place in Oslo, Norway. There was a mass rally that was held uh, on Saturday. The rally's coordinators urged the international community to side with truth and justice by denouncing the terrorist TPLF remnants atrocities on the Amhara and Afar people. It said that, quote, we Ethiopians, Eritreans, and Somalians, as well as Ivorians, will continue struggling until the Western conspiracy is conquered and Ethiopia's sovereignty is ensured. Norway is expected to identify the root causes of the ongoing instability in Ethiopia and try to defend the Ethiopian government's law enforcement measures against the terrorist group uh, to the European Union and the United Nations the coordinators said 
Eritrean, Somali, and Ivorian community in Oslo, Norway. Representatives also conveyed in a message and accentuated the United African struggle against the Western conspiracy in the name of democracy. They said the current conspiracy to subdue Ethiopia is unacceptable, and Africans across the length and breadth of the continent should continue supporting uh, the Ethiopian cause. Accordingly, uh, the demonstrators chanted TPLF will no more be allowed to poison the region's peace, unity, sovereignty, and integrity. One of the TPLF founders, Gidi Zarastian, spoke in detail on how the terrorist group defied peaceful ways of resolving differences. The group in various times went against the country's constitution to serve its narrow-end interests, he said. He also said that the group was brewed, uh, has brewed enmity among all the people in the adjacent states of Tigray, such as Amhar and Afar, as well as with the neighboring country of Eritrea. Quote, the people of Tigray should stop this group that has been destroying the long cherished brotherhood with peoples of the adjacent states and neighboring nations, unquote. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, the Sudanese uh, Nation uh, a report that was published today uh, in the Sudan Tribune said at least six Sudanese soldiers were killed during an attack by the Ethiopian army on the border strip uh, yesterday morning. Uh, heavy fighting erupted between Sudanese forces and Ethiopian troops that crossed the border at a depth of 17 kilometers yesterday. Uh, fierce battles took place east of Umdisa and Barakat Noreen, not far from the Ethiopian settlement of Mount Kamo, uh, which is located inside Sudanese territory east of the Akbara uh, River. Uh, heavy artillery and machine guns were used in the fighting that lasted more than seven hours, according to Sudanese military sources. The same sources told the Sudan Tribune that about 21 troops were killed uh, from the Sudanese side. However, Lieutenant Colonel Ibrahim Al-Huri, who is the editor-in-chief of the Armed Forces newspaper, said that the Army mourned six martyrs in Al-Faksha, bringing to 90 the number of Sudanese troops killed in the border clashes uh, since April of 2020. The Sudanese army, in a statement released earlier, said that the assailants, quote, suffered huge losses in lives and equipment, unquote, without further details. The Ethiopian army, which is battling against the Tigray rebels, did not issue a statement about these clashes. Sudanese commentators say the attack was meant to draw internal support for the embattled Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and his troops, who are seeking to stop the progress of the TPLF fighters towards the Ethiopian capital. And finally, in West Africa, the last thing that Asata Ndai remembers before waking up in a Moroccan hospital was shivering helplessly while watching her friend Khadija, a young mother, drift away in the Mediterranean. The inflatable dinghy on which they had been trying to cross the sea had just capsized. Ndai was only one of the few who managed to make it back on board. And Dai, uh, who was only 21 at the time, had paid a woman more than 1 million CFA francs, about 1,700 U.S. dollars, to secure her passage from Tangier to Spain. She was hoping to attend university once uh, she arrived. 
I have lived a lot of pain, and Daddy said, I dreamed of traveling the world, and I did it, but not the way I wanted to. Every year, thousands of people find resourceful ways to travel from different parts of sub-Saharan Africa to attempt to cross into Europe in search of a better life and to flee conflict and persecution. According to the International Organization for Migration, some 2,400 people died or disappeared while trying to migrate to Europe in the first nine months of this year, more than in the whole of last year. About 1,200 deaths were recorded on the route from Libya to Italy. Others uh, ended up stranded in labor camps or in random places in remote parts of North Africa. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and uh, since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and Global Affairs, if you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And um, by logging on to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network, not only can you have uh, access uh, to um, this program for today, uh, which is Sunday, November 28, 2021, but well over a thousand other archived editions of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, we're going to take a musical interlude, and uh, we'll listen uh, to uh, the music uh, from the city of Detroit, uh, from uh, Motown Records, and of course, uh, we're going to hear music uh, from uh, the Marvelettes, uh, who originated uh, from uh, the city of Inkster. Let's listen in.
Welcome back, and uh, that was a Marvelette, uh, Motown Sound, Detroit's own Marvelette, When You're Young and In Love. And uh, right now we want to move into uh, a address that was delivered uh, earlier today by South African uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa discussing the Omicron uh, variant of COVID-19, and uh, he also responds eloquently uh, in regard to the travel ban that was imposed uh, by various countries uh, led uh, by the Western imperialist states, I guess not only South Africa, but other countries throughout the Southern African Development Community region. Uh, let's listen uh, to this address delivered earlier today by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. To the variant, we pay tribute to our scientists who are world-renowned and widely respected and have demonstrated that they have a deep knowledge of epidemiology. There are a number of things that we already know about this variant Omicron. As a result of the work our scientists have been doing on genome surveillance. Firstly, we now know that Omicron has far more mutation than any previous variant. Secondly, we know that Omicron is readily detected by the current COVID-19 tests. This means that people who are showing COVID-19 symptoms or have been in contact with someone who is COVID-19 positive should still get tested. Thirdly, we know that this variant is different from other circulating variants and that it is not directly related to the Delta or the Beta variants. Fourthly, we know that the variant is responsible for most of the infections found in Gauteng over the last two weeks and is now showing up in all other provinces in our country. There are still a number of things about the variant that we do not know yet and that our scientists in South Africa and elsewhere in the world are still hard at work to establish. Over the next few days and weeks, as more data becomes available, we will have a better understanding of, one, whether Omicron is transmitted more easily between people, and two, whether it increases the risk of reinfection, and three, whether this variant causes more severe disease, and four, how effective the current vaccines are against this variant Omicron. The identification of Omicron coincides with a sudden rise in COVID-19 infections. This increase has been centered in Gauteng, although cases are also rising in other provinces. We have seen an average of 1,600 new cases in the last seven days, compared to just 500 new daily cases in the previous week and 275 new daily cases the week before that. The proportion of COVID-19 tests that are positive 
has risen from around 2% to 9% in less than a week. This is extremely sharp of a rise in infections in a short space of time. If cases continue to climb, we can expect to enter a fourth wave of infections within the next few weeks, if not sooner. This should not come as a surprise. Epidemiologists and disease modelers have told us that we should expect a fourth wave in early December. Scientists have also told us to expect the emergence of new variants. There are several concerns about the Omicron variant and we are still not sure exactly how it will behave going forward. However, we already have the tools that we need to protect ourselves against it. We know enough about the variant to know what we need to do to reduce transmission and to protect ourselves against severe disease as well as death. The first, which is the most important, we have a powerful tool called vaccination. Since the first COVID-19 vaccines became available last year, we have seen how vaccines have dramatically reduced severe illness, hospitalization and death in South Africa and indeed across the world. Vaccines do work and vaccines are saving lives. Since we launched our public vaccination program in May of this year, over 25 million vaccine doses have been administered in South Africa. This is a remarkable achievement. It is, as I once said, by far the most extensive health intervention undertaken in the history of this country in such a short space of time. 41% of the adult population have received at least one vaccine dose and 35.6% of adult South Africans are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Significantly, 57% of people aged 60 years and older are fully vaccinated and 53% of people aged between 50 and 60 are also fully vaccinated. While this is welcome progress, it is not enough to enable us to reduce infections, to prevent illness, and also to prevent death, and to restore our economy. Vaccination against COVID-19 is free, as we all know. Tonight, I'd like to call on every person who has not been vaccinated to go to their nearest vaccination station without delay. If there is someone in your family or among your friends who is not vaccinated, I call on you to encourage them to get vaccinated. We still have too many people who are expressing doubt and who are resisting to be vaccinated. This is the time for us to go and get vaccinated.
Vaccination is by far the most important way to protect yourself and those around you against the Omicron variant, to reduce the impact of the fourth wave and to help restore the social freedoms we all yearn for. Vaccination is also vital to the return of our economy to full operation, to the resumption of travel and to the recovery of vulnerable sectors like tourism and hospitality. The development of the vaccines we have against COVID-19 has been made possible thanks to the millions of ordinary people who have volunteered to participate in the trials that have been had to advance scientific knowledge for the benefit of humanity. They are the people who have proven that these vaccines are safe and effective. These people are our heroes. They join the ranks of health workers who have been at the forefront of the fight against the pandemic for close on two years and who continue to care for the sick, who continue to administer vaccines and who continue to save lives. We need to be thinking about the people who have been courageous when we consider getting vaccinated. By getting vaccinated, we are not only protecting ourselves, but we are also reducing the pressure on our healthcare system, on our healthcare workers, and reducing the risks faced by our healthcare workers as well. South Africa, like a number of other countries, is looking at booster vaccines for people who are at greatest risk and for whom a booster may be beneficial. Healthcare workers in the Sisonke trial, many of whom who were vaccinated more than six months ago, are being offered Johnson & Johnson booster doses. Pfizer has filed an application to the South African Health Products Re Regulatory Authority for a third dose to be administered after the two-dose primary series. The Ministerial Advisory Committee on Vaccines has already indicated that it will recommend a staged introduction of boosters commencing with the older population. Other people with immunodeficiency, such as those on cancer treatment, renal dialysis, and on steroids treatment for autoimmune diseases, are allowed booster doses on recommendation of their doctors. As individuals, as companies, and as government, we have a responsibility to ensure that all people in this country can work, travel, and socialize safely. We have therefore been undertaking engagements with social partners and other stakeholders on introducing measures that can make vaccination a condition for access to workplaces, public events, public transport, and public establishments. Now, these engagements include discussions that we've been having at uh, the NEDLEC level between government, labor, business, and the community constituency, where there is 
already broad agreement on the need for such measures. Government has set up a task team that will undertake broad consultations on making vaccination mandatory for specific activities and locations. That is, to make vaccinations compulsory for certain, certain locations and certain activities. The task team will report to the Interministerial Committee on Vaccination, chaired by the Deputy President, which will make recommendations to Cabinet on a fair and sustainable approach to vaccine mandates. We do realize that the introduction of such a measure is a difficult and complex issue. But if we do not address this seriously and as a matter of urgency, we will continue to be vulnerable as a people to new variants and will continue to suffer new waves of infection. I would like us to consider this matter very seriously. A number of other countries, even in our own country, a number of companies have made vaccinations mandatory. I'd like a consultation to be engaged in, but I do want us to treat it seriously so that we're able to defend our people. The second tool we have to fight the new variant is to continue to wear our face masks whenever we are in public places and in the company of people outside our households. There is now overwhelming evidence that the proper and consistent wearing of a cloth mask or other suitable face covering over both the nose and the mouth is the best way to prevent transmission of the virus from one person to another. The third tool we have to fight the new variant is the cheapest and the most abundant, and that is fresh air. This means that we must try as much as possible to be outdoors when we meet people outside our household, when we are indoors with other people or in cars, in buses, in taxis, we need to keep the windows open to ensure that air can flow freely through the space. Now this is what our scientists, our medical personnel continue to advise and they pass on that advice to us at the National Coronavirus Command Council which is precisely what I'm doing to all of us tonight. The fourth tool we have to fight the new variant is to avoid gatherings, particularly indoor gatherings. Mass gatherings such as major conferences and meetings, especially those that require a large number of people to be in close contact over extended periods, should be changed to virtual format. End-of-year parties and these metric year-end raves that young people participate in, as well as other celebrations, should be avoided or postponed. And every person should think twice 
before attending or organizing such a gathering. Last year, many of our young people attended these metric raves and they were centers of mass infection. Where gatherings do take place, all the necessary COVID protocols must be closely observed. Every additional contact we have increases our risk of becoming infected or infecting someone else. Fellow South Africans, the National Coronavirus Command Council met yesterday to consider the recent rise in infections and the possible impact of Omicron variant. This meeting was followed by meetings earlier today of the President's Coordinating Council which is attended, as you well know, by our premiers and uh, members of the Coronavirus Council, as well as our metro mayors. There was also a cabinet meeting where a decision was taken that the country should remain on coronavirus alert level one for now and that the national state of disaster should remain in place. In taking the decision not to impose further restrictions at this stage, we considered the fact that when we encountered previous waves of infection, vaccines were not widely available and far fewer people were vaccinated. This is no longer the case. Vaccines are now available to anyone aged 12 and above. They are free. And they are also available at many sites across the country. We know that they prevent severe disease and hospitalization. We also know that the coronavirus will be with us for the long term. We must therefore find ways of managing the pandemic while limiting disruptions to the economy and ensuring continuity. However, this approach will not be sustainable if we do not increase the vaccination rate, if we do not wear our masks, or if we fail to adhere to the basic health precautions. We should all remember that in terms of alert level 1 regulations, there is still a curfew in place from 12 midnight to 4 a.m. No more than 750 people may gather indoors and no more than 2,000 people may gather outdoors. Where the venue is too small to accommodate these numbers with appropriate social distancing, then no more than 50% of the capacity of the venue may be used. No more than 100 people are permitted at a funeral and night vigils after funeral gatherings and after tears gatherings are not allowed. The wearing of masks in public places is mandatory and failure to wear a mask when required remains a criminal offense. The sale of alcohol is permitted according to the regular license conditions but may not be sold during curfew hours. We will closely monitor infection rates as well as hospitalization over the coming days and will review the situation 
in another week. We will then need to determine whether the existing measures are adequate or whether changes need to be made to the current regulations. We have started the process of amending our health regulations so that we can review the use of the Disaster Management Act to manage our response to the pandemic with a view to ultimately lifting the national state of disaster. We will also implement our national resurgence plan to ensure that hospitals and other medical facilities are made ready now for the fourth wave. We are focusing on effective clinical governance, contact tracing, and screening effective clinical care, availability of health personnel as well is an important area that we are focusing on. To ensure our facilities are ready, all hospital beds that were available or required during the third wave of COVID-19 are planned and prepared for the fourth wave. We are also working to ensure that oxygen supply is available to all beds earmarked for COVID-19 care. We will continue to be guided by the World Health Organization on international travel, which advises against the closure of borders. Like most other countries, we already have the means to control the importation of variants to other countries. This includes the requirement that travelers produce a vaccination certificate and a negative PCR test taken within 72 hours of travel and that masks are worn for the duration of travel. We are deeply disappointed by the decision of several countries to prohibit travel from a number of Southern African countries, including our own, following the identification of the Omicron variant. This is a clear and completely unjustified departure from the commitment that many of these countries made at the meeting of the G20 countries in Rome last month. When they were there, they pledged that to restart international travel, it should be done in a safe and orderly manner, consistent with the work of relevant international organizations such as the WHO, the International Civil Aviation Organization and the International Maritime Organization and the OECD. The G20 Rome Declaration noted the plight of the tourism sector in developing countries and made a commitment to support a rapid, resilient, inclusive and sustainable recovery of the tourism sector. Countries that have imposed travel restrictions on our country and some of our Southern African sister countries include the United Kingdom, the United States, the European Union members, Canada, Turkey, Sri Lanka, Oman, the United Arab Emirates, Australia, Japan, Thailand, the Seychelles, Brazil, and Guatemala, among others. Now, these restrictions are completely unjustified and unfairly discriminate against our country and our Southern African sister countries. The prohibition of travel is not informed by science, 
nor will it be effective in preventing the spread of this variant. The only thing the prohibition on travel will do is to further damage the economies of the affected countries and undermine their ability to respond to and also to recover from the pandemic. We call upon these countries that have imposed travel bans on our country and our other Southern African sister countries to immediately and urgently reverse their decisions and lift the bans they have imposed before any further damage is done on our economies and to the livelihoods of our people. There is no scientific justification whatsoever for keeping these restrictions in place. We know that this virus, like all viruses, does mutate and form new variants. We also know that the likelihood of the emergence of more severe forms of variants is increased significantly where people are not vaccinated. That is why we have joined many countries and organizations and people around the world who have been fighting for equal access to vaccines for everyone. We have said that vaccine inequality not only costs lives and livelihoods in those countries that are denied access, but that it also threatens global efforts to overcome the pandemic. The emergence of the Omicron variant should be a wake-up call to the world that vaccine inequality cannot be allowed to continue. Until everyone is vaccinated, everyone will continue to be at risk. Until everyone is vaccinated, we should expect that more variants will keep on emerging. These variants may well be more transmissible, may cause more severe disease, and may be more resistant to the current vaccines. Instead of prohibiting travel, the rich countries of the world need to support the efforts of developing countries, economies that is, to access and to manufacture enough vaccine doses for their people without delay. Fellow South Africans, the emergence of the Omicron variant and the recent rise in cases have made it clear that we will have to live with this virus for some time to come, as I have been saying. We have the knowledge, we have the experience, and we have the tools to manage this pandemic. To resume many of our daily activities and to rebuild our economy, we have the ability to determine the path our country will take. Every one of us needs to get vaccinated. I'm repeating about vaccination because it is the best tool that we have. And I'm also saying to those who are doubtful that vaccines are safe. They've been proven to be so and they save lives. Everyone of us needs to practice the basic health protocols that we've always spoken about, about wearing masks, washing hands and all that. Every one of us needs to take responsibility for our own health and the health of those around us. Every one of us 
has a role to play. We will not be defeated by this pandemic. And I'd like to say tonight that we should not panic. We have to live with this pandemic. We have already started living with it. We will endure and we will overcome and we will thrive. May God continue to bless our beautiful country and protect her people. Gosisigeleli Africa. I thank you. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa delivering a message uh, earlier today on uh, the emergence of the Omicron variant of the COVID-19 virus. And uh, he also responded uh, forthrightly uh, in regard to the blanket uh, travel bans that have been imposed over the weekend on countries uh, in Southern Africa, not only in South Africa, but at least seven other states uh, in the Southern African Development Community region have been hit uh, with uh, travel bans, even though uh, COVID-19 is running rampant on the European continent, in the Netherlands, in Australia, in Germany, in France. And, of course, there's, as far as I know, been no travel ban uh, placed on the uh, European Union countries into the United States. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was Angela Winbush uh, with the tune entitled Your Smiles. Uh, right now, we want to listen uh, to Africa Live from CGTN discussing uh, developments uh, in Africa. Uh, let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. More countries limit flights from Southern Africa as new coronavirus variant spreads around the world. Senegal prepares to host the 8th Ministerial Conference of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. And demonstrators demand safe passes for refugees following the drowning of 27 people in the English Channel. Hello and welcome. You're watching Africa Live. We're coming to live from Nairobi. I'm Hannah Vivia. Here more stories making headlines. In sport, Morocco out to defend FIFA Arab Cup title in Qatar as tournament kicks off on Tuesday. More countries are imposing restrictions as concerns mount over the newly identified COVID variant. Saudi Arabia has added seven more African countries to its travel ban. The United States, Europe and South Korea are among those limiting travel from Southern Africa. Israel has banned the entry of all foreigners. It comes as more nations are detecting the Omicron variant. Australia reported its first two cases in Sydney. Great Britain, Germany, Italy and the Czech Republic found cases of the variant on Saturday. There are worries that travel bans will further hurt tourism. Oil prices also saw their biggest single-day slump since the early days of the outbreak. Well, people in South Africa could be faced with stricter COVID-19 restrictions, according to local media. The speculation comes on the back of the detection of a new COVID-19 variant now being called Omicron. President Cyril Ramaphosa is set to address the nation on Sunday evening following his meeting with the country's Coronavirus Command Council. Travelers have this weekend been lining up at airports to exit South Africa. This after countries impose flight restrictions from various Southern African countries. Many require their citizens who have traveled to red listed countries to test and quarantine upon arrival. Well, CGTN's Angela Coppola has more on this new development. He's currently in Angola's capital, Luanda. Hi there, Angela. More countries banning travelers from South Africa. How are authorities in South Africa responding to this new variant? And how likely is it that they could see another lockdown in the country? Well, as you mentioned already, uh, Ramaphosa is going to be addressing the nation, and that's in about an hour or so. The rumors are flying that he's going to come down quite hard, but I'm not about to speculate about what he's going to say just yet. But it's considered important enough and urgent enough for Ramaphosa to have convened his command council a day early, so that happened yesterday. He consulted with many structures that he normally consults with before he comes on air, and he said that many times before that he relies on the science and local scientists for guidance in terms of what they decide to do. Analysts and business groups are, of course, hoping that he keeps his word. Meanwhile, the WHO says in a statement just released that it stands by Southern African nations and calls for borders to remain open. 
In a statement, it also called for the countries to follow the science. The WHO has commended, in fact, South Africa and Botswana for the speed and transparency in making the announcement around that new variant. Um, that statement hasn't helped stem the tide of countries suspending flights to southern African countries, unfortunately, Hannah. Angela, we've also seen reports of many people being stranded in airports after airlines cancelled those flights. How bad is the situation? Well, Hannah, we're hearing reports that between, anything between 20,000 and 35,000 UK citizens are currently stuck in South Africa looking to get back home since the UK suspended those flights a couple of days ago. It's rumoured that there are also a certain number of beds are available and nothing near the number needed to put those people into quarantine when they get back home. It now seems that British Airways will be resuming flights from early next week to clear that backlog. So many Brits are going to be sighing a, a, a sigh of relief, provided they don't have COVID or any of its variants. And as you just heard, Angola has announced that it's suspending flights in and out of South Africa for the time being, and that's from midnight on Sunday night tonight. Um, we know of at least one big conference that's uh, going to probably be affected that starts on Monday. And Angola has also included Botswana, Lesotho, Namibia, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, and Eswatini in that flight ban. So it looks like nobody's heeding the WHO call, and everybody's banning Southern African countries from flying into or out of their countries. Hannah? Thank you so much for that update, Angela. Angela Coppola, he's speaking to us from Luanda. Angola. Well, let's stay in South Africa. Authorities there have asked Johnson & Johnson to delay the delivery of more COVID-19 vaccines because the country is yet to consume the rising stockpile of the doses. The decision has been prompted by continued vaccine hesitancy that has slowed down the country's ongoing vaccination campaign. Here's Angela Coppola once again with the details. Previously, the South African government's program to inoculate people had been slowed by insufficient doses a case of too many arms and not enough doses. But that's changed recently. We have around 150 days worth of stock. And that's across both Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson. We've had a leveling off, quite a significant leveling off of the daily vaccination rates. We're averaging anywhere between 110 to 120,000 vaccines a day. Of course, at peak, we were doing between 250 and 280,000 a day. Health authorities realised they had a challenge on their hands. They are now establishing sites close to high-density population areas and incentivising vaccinations. The reality is that uh, COVID doesn't really feature right at the top of their list of things to worry about. Um, in the context of crime, uh, other health conditions such as uh, HIV, uh, just some of the challenges of day-to-day -day living, um, it just doesn't loom large. And, and, and I think that that is uh, one of the biggest problems in South Africa, as opposed to what we might call vaccine hesitancy. The announcement of the discovery of a new variant might, however, lead to more people seeking vaccines. I'm hopeful that a new variant, which is seemingly more contagious than the Delta variant, will rekindle uh, demand again in South Africa so that we can start using this excess supply that we've got of course, the risk with excess supply, Angela, is if you don't use uh, these vaccines, they do have a shelf life. The priority is to get more of the older people to get inoculated as they're the ones most at risk. Incentives like giving people grocery vouchers have had some success. Just today, we're launching uh, a lucky draw um, uh, of uh, prizes uh, worth a considerable amount of money, 100,000 rand. Um, uh, that's uh, you know, eight to nine thousand uh, dollars to try and get people to come 
uh, to come forward for vaccination. Well, vaccine hesitancy has been an issue in South Africa. It's unclear what the latest variant's appearance is going to do to that hesitancy level, whether it's going to bring it down or increase it. I'm Angelo Coppola for CGTN in Johannesburg, South Africa. Well, the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention headquarters is under construction in Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. It is now close to 50% complete. On Friday, a topping out ceremony was held at the construction site in the presence of the Chinese ambassador to the AU, African Union officials and Ethiopian authorities. Here's CGTN's Giram Chala with more. It was a little more than 300 days ago that this China-aided Africa CDC headquarters construction began here in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa. Now construction has reached close to 50%, built in a record speed and quality. In a topping out ceremony organized, attended by AU, Chinese and Ethiopian officials, African Union Commissioner for Social Affairs, Amira El-Fadil said, amazing work has been done despite the challenges faced. When I came in, I was looking, I said, this is amazing. Really, with COVID-19 challenges, with all the challenges we are facing, there is a building that's been built in a very short time. And all of you who were with us here when we celebrated the inauguration of this building, they are, I'm sure they are also amazed by this quick development. The progress of this project is a sign of a strong China-Africa cooperation spirit. The smooth progress of the ACDC headquarters building perfectly illustrates the friendly and cooperative spirit of the brotherhood between China and Africa and will make great contributions to strengthening pandemic prevention and control in Africa. The primary structure of this would-be Africa CDC HQ is now complete. And come next year, the state-of-the-art building will start delivering the intended service for Africa. The African Union has said it appreciates China's commitment and delivery. I really appreciate this partnership, the growing partnership between the African Union and the government of China. And I had the pleasure to be responsible about the part of the partnership that relates to health and to social development. So thank you very much, China. Thank you very much to the people and the government of China for this commitment to Africa, for being reliable in your commitment to Africa, for delivering in this joint uh, partnership. When fully completed, the Africa CDC headquarters will house offices, laboratories, research facilities, as well as residential buildings. Already the China-Africa partnership, more particularly in the health sector, is surpassing expectations by some. From the delivery of COVID-19-related consignments, sending experts, as well as millions of doses of vaccines to Africa, China has laid the strongest foundation for Africa to tackle future health challenges through the building of Africa CDC headquarters. Group Jala CGTN, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. 
Well, the eighth ministerial conference of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation is set to kick off in Senegal's capital, Dakar. China's Chinese President Xi Jinping is expected to deliver the keynote speech via video link. The two-day conference will begin on Monday. A gathering will also be held among entrepreneurs. For the first time, the two sides are expected to issue a joint declaration on fighting climate change. FOCAC is comprised of 55 members, including 53 African countries, China, the African Union Commission. Well, let's not cross over to Nick Mudimba, who is in Dakar. Hi there, Nick. Preparations have been going on for the meeting. What's the latest from Dakar? Right, thank you very much, Hannah. The levels from the guys that actually the summit is actually gaining momentum, and today a state councillor and Chinese foreign minister just landed in the calories Wang Yi. Of course, he was received by his counterpart, uh, Ms. Tal, and uh, they later proceeded to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for a short bilateral me- meeting. And of course, as you mentioned, that uh, President Xi Jinping will be giving his keynote address tomorrow on Monday via video link. And there's so much going to happen in the two-day uh, forum that is be, be held right here in Dakar, Senegal. And other leaders have actually touched down here, leaders from different African countries, because you know very well this will be a forum once again that will be cementing a bilateral, a long-term relationship between uh, China and African countries. Hannah. Nick, what are the key issues that are expected to be discussed at this forum? Absolutely. So many myriad of issues will be discussed in this um, summit. And of course, when you see when you talk about climate change, when you talk about health, when you talk about security, when you talk about infrastructure in Africa, all these will be touched on in the uh, forum. Because now, when you look at it very carefully, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic had slowed down things. But right now, things are beginning to open up gradually, especially in Africa. And right now is the moment whereby key issues will actually be touched on regarding how the continent has also been handling the COVID-19 pandemic, how the continent has also been handling its own security because Africa as a whole has been benefiting big time from Chinese aid, Chinese help. And this time round, just as the theme goes, that strengthening bilateral talks will actually be the core of the summit. Things actually going to be looking good during the two-day events. Thank you so much for all that, Nick. Nick Medimba speaking to us from Senegal's capital, Dakar. Well, ahead of the forum on China-Africa cooperation, CGTN spoke with a former Nigerian president, Olesha Gonobasanjo. He is now co-chair of the Interaction Council of Former Heads of Government. Obasanjo gave us his thoughts on the concept of a shared future for mankind. What is important for me is shared future. Now, our future globally now are so intricately interrelated and woven together that if the future of Africa is uncertain, it has implication for the rest of the world. And you take the pandemic uh, particularly. Africa should be able to pre- be able to get the drugs that it will need for her basic health care. And there's no reason why China should not be a, should not give a helping hand in that respect. And because we are talking of shared future. Uh, 
and this is uh, the pandemic knows no boundary knows no uh, race knows no uh, uh, political system I believe the, the particularly this uh, FOCAC uh, that is coming 29.30 in Senegal I think that shared future should be spelled out in specific areas with the support of a Chinese charity, students at 20 schools in the Ethiopian capital, Baris Ababa, can now have access to clean drinking water. China Foundation for Poverty Alleviation and its partners handed over water cellar facilities last week. The facilities were built with financial support from Chinese construction giant Suzhou Construction Machinery Group. The newly functional clean water facilities have benefited more than 23,000 school children. Since 2015, the foundation has been carrying out activities through its major programs in Ethiopia to feed school children and purify water on the outskirts of the capital. Let's not take a short break and return more on Africa Live, including... Demonstrators demand safe passage for refugees following the drowning of 27 people in the English Channel. This is it. I'm just about to be shot. The tents here, bottles are being thrown as they do so. Uh, we there are about three critical <laughs> bridges here in Malawi. That's one of them. We're going to cross that bridge. As you can see behind me, police forces. Who are replying with gas. Gas just came in. So it's all begun now. Divisions leading the charge into West Mosul have brought us here. This is where most of the fighting has been concentrated. It's the front line now after nine days of fighting. We're about two to three kilometers from the front clear line. view of this front line position. Welcome back. You're watching Africa Live. Well, the UK says that it needs French cooperation to help stop migrants from trying to cross the English Channel. It comes after 27 people drowned on Wednesday trying to get to England from France. Their boat is reported to have deflated in one of the world's busiest shipping lanes. The British media has identified the first victim of that tragedy. She was 24-year-old Mariam Nuri Mohammed Amin, the Kurdish woman from Iraq, and she was on her way to see her fiancé. While demonstrators gathered in London to protest the disaster, they marched outside Downing Street demanding safe passage for asylum seekers to the UK. The demonstrators accused the government of treating the refugee issue as a political game. 25,000 people have made the dangerous journey across the English Channel in small boats this year, triple the amount as last year. 
We're here to send a really important message that we need a proper refugee system in this country for people with proper legal representation and a genuine opportunity to seek a safe passage to the UK so that lives are being lost in the channel day in, day out, lives being lost in the Mediterranean day in, day out, that needs to end. In Niger, at least two people have been killed and 18 others injured in the western part of the country after protesters clashed with a French military convoy. According to Niger's government, the protesters blocked the French military convoy after it had crossed the border from Burkina Faso. The armored vehicles and logistics trucks had been blocked in Burkina Faso for a week by demonstrators there. Anger about France's military presence in its former colonies have been rising in countries in the Sahel region. The protesters are against French forces' failure to stop mounting violence by Islamist militants. Meanwhile, in Burkina Faso, protesters took to the streets to demonstrate against the continued militant violence. Police used tear gas against the demonstrators. The march was not authorized by the government officials. Protesters burned tires and attacked a government building. This comes two weeks after an attack by Al-Qaeda-linked militants left 51 people dead, including 49 officers. Opponents of President Roche Kabore called for renewed protests in response to this. France is also facing opposition from a section of Burkina Faso's population. Last week, demonstrators blocked a French military convoy headed towards Niger. President Kabore has, on his part, vowed to combat what he termed as dysfunction in the army. Well, for more insight into the reasons behind the protests in Burkina Faso, we spoke with David Otto Endele. He is the Director on Security for Horn of Africa Institute for Peace and Security. Otto Endele says that beyond insecurity, a weakened economy is spurring these demonstrations. What we're seeing today is that, you know, these militants that are linked uh, to either, um, you know, um, local militias or the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda networks are targeting um, state security forces. I mean, the last uh, being uh, gendarmeries. And this has led to a massive um, movement of people and, you know, internally displaced um, individuals. Um, it has led to a high level of economic uh, degradation, especially in the north of Burkina Faso and the, and the east of Burkina Faso, which is close to Niger Republic, and of course the north uh, towards Mali. So this is a very, very worrying situation, uh, that France can improve uh, its operations, not just in Burkina Faso, but also in Mali and Niger, is to be able to be very transparent um, with its uh, counter-terrorism operations. At the moment, uh, that seems not to be the case. And, you know, for almost a decade now, there hasn't been any improvement in security. And the presence of France is seen by the local population as, you know, contrary to the promises that the French, you know, operation back in made. So I think it's high time uh, that France really improves its transparency and then work towards, you know, stabilizing the local Burkina Bay military so that it can have the capacity uh, to deal with uh, the local jihadist movements that are operating in this area. If France doesn't do that, it will continue to lose face in the eyes of the Burkina Bay. Today's sport news coming up after the short break, including... Morocco out to defend FIFA Arab Cup title in Qatar. The tournament kicks off on Tuesday. The greatest journeys. The greatest sights. The greatest adventures. Here in Panatur, this weir allows the locals to walk on water. 
We're far more than just TV news. We're your passport to the wonders of Africa. To bring you stories of struggle, survival and hope. So let's explore. CGTN. See the difference. Africa Live. Find your voice. In sport, we kick off with football. Morocco will put their title on the line when the FIFA 2021 Arab Cup kicks off in Qatar on Tuesday. Egypt, Tunisia, Algeria, and Sudan are the... Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast, uh, this special edition of our program for Sunday, uh, November 28th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, that was uh, Africa Live uh, with an update on a myriad of issues impacting uh, the African continent and the international community. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back uh, with more of our program. Uh, today, 
uh, Cuba is led uh, by Miguel uh, Diaz-Canel Bermudez, uh, who is the president uh, of uh, the Republic of Cuba. We want to look back uh, at the lifetimes and contributions of Fidel Castro. Uh, one of the signature historical events, of course, uh, was the Cuban repulsion of the attempted uh, U.S.-backed invasion of the Bay of Pigs in April of 1961. We want to go back and listen uh, to a broadcast uh, from uh, a major network in the United States uh, in April of 1961 covering the Bay of Pigs intervention and, uh, of course, raising questions even at that time uh, to the administration of uh, the then 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. Let's listen to this uh, broadcast as heard in 1961 on the Bay of Pigs intervention. In 1761, the Bay of Pigs. In the years since he took power, Fidel Castro has become an enemy of the United States. In the eyes of Washington, a threat to United States security in the Caribbean. A plan of action against him is drawn up. March 17, 1960. CIA chief Alan Dulles is told secretly, organize a Cuban exile force. He is not told how the force is to be used. He is only told, get it ready. In Miami, recruiting for an exile army has begun. The operation is supposed to be secret, but word of what is happening quickly leaks out. Six weeks after the secret meeting at the White House, Fidel Castro has publicly charged that the United States is training an army to invade Cuba. <laughs> Meanwhile in Miami, there are 50 exile groups of every political hue, from former supporters of Batista to former supporters of Castro. They have only one thing in common. They want to overthrow Fidel. The CIA's problem is to find a way to unify them. The people of Cuba will overthrow Castro because always the people are the ones who overthrow dictatorship. The announcement of the formation of the Frente does not receive the expected attention. The summer of 1960 is a bad time for the United States. Other events occupy the headlines. A U-2 shot down over the Soviet Union. Nikita Khrushchev in Paris, insulting the President of the United States, wrecking the summit conference. It is at this moment that the Soviet tanker Peking slips quietly into Havana Harbor, carrying a cargo of crude oil that will set off a chain reaction. Castro orders Texaco, Shell, and Esso plants in Cuba to refine the Soviet oil. They refuse and Castro seizes the refineries. He offers no reparations. Over angry Cuban protests, the United States retaliates by cutting off its imports of Cuban sugar. Castro seizes more United States property. 
Now, in the summer of 1960, the United States and Cuba have reached the point of no return. In Washington, the Eisenhower administration is now convinced it is in the United States' national interest to get rid of Fidel Castro. At this moment in Guatemala, a Cuban exile army is being created by the CIA. A Cuban exile air force with B-26 bombers. They are the instruments with which the CIA plans to overthrow Fidel Castro. Havana, summer 1960. Fidel Castro admits publicly for the first time there is unrest inside Cuba, counter-revolutionary activity. Among his opponents now is his former Minister of Public Works, Manuel Rai, leader of the MRP. The MRP was highly organized and well extended over the whole country. Our organization reached almost every section of the Cuban life. Civic institutions, professional organizations, labor unions, the militia, the army, and we have people inside of Fidel Castro's office. The MRP operates in the cities. It's an underground movement specializing in sabotage. In the Escambray Mountains is another anti-Castro force, the guerrillas. In September 1960, it has become a serious threat to Fidel Castro. He comes to the Escambray to take personal command of the military operation. But resistance continues. Late in September, Castro leaves the Escambray and comes to New York. He is an uninvited guest. He will attend the UN General Assembly. While he is in New York, he sees his new ally, Nikita Khrushchev. The date is September 26, 1960. Castro will tell the General Assembly the United States is seeking to overthrow him, is training an army to invade his country, is interfering in Cuba's internal affairs. A few weeks later, the Democratic candidate for president is in New York campaigning. He issues a statement in which he says the United States is not doing enough for the Cuban exiles. He says the United States ought to help them. In their television debate, Vice President Nixon disagrees. Now, I don't know what Senator Kennedy suggests when he says that we should help those who oppose the Castro regime, both in Cuba and without. But I do know this, that if we were to follow that recommendation, that we would lose all of our friends in Latin America, we would probably be condemned in the United Nations, and we would not accomplish our objective. I know something else. It would be an open invitation for Mr. Khrushchev to come in. As the votes are counted on November 8th, it is clear that a key issue has been who knows best how to handle Castro. It is the closest presidential election in United States history. But uh, we finally emerged successfully. Now, as far as the next uh, program, I've 
went to the country with very clear views of what the United States ought to do in the 60s. I have been elected, and uh, therefore I'm going to do my best to implement those views. Even as the president-elect speaks, in Guatemala, the force that he has called for in his campaign, the force that Nixon has denied exists, that Eisenhower has created, that Castro has denounced, is getting trained and ready. In Cuba, meanwhile, Castro is sending his best troops into the Escambray to destroy the guerrillas, now cut off from arms and supplies. Thousands of Fidel's militiamen began an offensive against us. They moved out the farmers, killed the cows, pigs, and chickens, cut down the fruit trees, burned the houses, took away the food. In view of this and the lack of help, we had to flee the island. The revolt is crushed. Castro has eliminated one threat to his survival. As 1960 ends, he goes on television to warn the Cuban people about another. He says the United States is preparing to invade Cuba. The invasion will come before Eisenhower leaves office. He calls for a general mobilization. The United States and Cuba break diplomatic relations. Tension mounts. The moment of armed confrontation between Cuba and the United States is near. January 20th, 1961. So let us begin anew. Remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. For a moment, there is a breathing spell in relations between the United States and Cuba a break in the tension that has been mounting for six months. In Havana, the militia is demobilized. The milicianos are sent back to the field. The leaders join them to harvest the crops. But in Washington, Cuba has not been forgotten. In his campaign, the new president has promised to do something about Cuba. Now he must decide what to do. But his advisors are new and inexperienced. He must rely on the professionals for military advice on General Lemnitzer and the Joint Chiefs, on the CIA, which is handling the Cuban problem, political and military aspects, as well as intelligence. CIA Director Alan Dulles briefed the president on the Cuban situation. He told the president the details of the invasion plan known by the code name of Operation Pluto. At that point, the landing was to be made at Trinidad on the Cuban coast 100 miles east of the Bay of Pigs. The United States was to supply air cover. As time went on, both of these parts of the plan were to be changed with the approval or at least the acquiescence of the CIA and the Pentagon. But at this point, Dulles simply wanted an okay from the president to continue preparations. He got it. From this date on, Operation Pluto gets top priority from the CIA. The CIA tells the Cuban exiles they must agree on a single leader if they want United States help. The Cubans choose Dr. Jose Miro Cardona. Once Castro's prime minister, Dr. Miro has remained neutral in the power struggle among the exile leaders. Now he comes to New York to become head of the anti-Castro Cubans. 
At his press conference, Dr. Miro speaks for the first time as president of the new Revolutionary Council. Ayude Cuba. Now the Cubans are united. The MRP has joined the new coalition reluctantly. They don't like the way the CIA is dominating the operation. But they assume United States participation assures the operation's success. They don't want to be left out of any new Cuban government. And the anti-Castro Cuban leaders feel they have reached a satisfactory understanding with the CIA. At this moment in Washington, the president is under heavy pressure. He is being pressed to okay the invasion plan. A major source of this pressure is CIA reports on what is happening inside Cuba. Uh, we knew that uh, the uh, Cuban pilots were being trained in Czechoslovakia. We knew that they were going to have, very shortly, available under Cuban direction MiGs in large considerable numbers. And uh, I'm inclined to think, as I said before, that if a move were to be made short of intervention, probably this was the area of time when it had to be made. Another source of pressure is the Guatemalans. Unrest is growing there. The communists and the army are demanding the removal of the brigade from the camps. The government feels threatened. The president has not yet made up his mind. Go ahead with the invasion or cancel it. On April 4th, a decisive meeting is held. Obviously, nothing official has ever been said about it. But from this perspective, certain facts are now apparent. On April 4th, the CIA urges the president to go ahead with the invasion. The Joint Chiefs agree, if the CIA estimate is correct, if the brigade has control of the air. Only Senate Foreign Relations Chairman Bright speaks out against the invasion, tells the president privately it is immoral, a mistake, it will fail. The decision can no longer be delayed. The president's experts have told him to go ahead. His staff has not argued against them. The decision is now his alone. He makes up his mind early on the morning of April 5th, 1961. Operation Pluto, the invasion of Cuba, is approved. Miami, the first week of April 1961. Invasion fever is rising among the Cuban exiles. Everyone seems to know the invasion is coming soon. Volunteers pour into exile headquarters. The churches are filled. Prayers are said for the men of the brigade. April 10th, in Guatemala, C-46 transports begin to move the 2506 assault brigade out of the camp. Destination, Puerto Cabeza, Nicaragua. At this moment, Dr. Miro and the Revolutionary Council are in New York, 2,000 miles away. In their hotel, they don't know what is happening. No one tells them. And behind the scenes, they are still deeply divided over how to defeat Castro. On April 12th, the president holds a press conference. And, uh, has a decision been reached uh, on how far this country would be willing to go in uh, helping an anti-Castro uh, uprising or invasion in Cuba are concerned? Well, first, I want to say that there will not be, under any conditions, be an intervention in Cuba by United States Armed Forces. And this government will do everything it possibly can, and I think it can meet its responsibilities to make sure that there are no Americans involved in any actions 
inside Cuba. Preparations for the invasion continue. From Texas, the United States U-2 takes off to photograph Castro airfield. A United States Naval Task Force puts to sea for Caribbean maneuvers scheduled for the next week. United States Marines are at sea in transport to take part in the maneuvers. April 13th, at Puerto Cabezas, Nicaragua, the exile invasion fleet is loading. Havana, dawn, Saturday, April 15th. B-26 bombers of the Cuban Exile Air Force attack Castro's airfield. The U.N., Saturday morning. Cuban Foreign Minister Raul Roa. I have been instructed by the revolutionary government of Cuba to denounce before this committee the vandalistic aggression carried out today at dawn against the territorial integrity and political independence of Cuba. The responsibility for this act of imperialistic piratry falls squarely on the government of the United States of America. Dr. Rowe has made a number of charges that are without any foundation. I reject them categorically, and I should like to make several points quite clear to the committee. Regarding the two aircraft which landed in Florida today, they were piloted by Cuban Air Force pilots. These pilots and certain other crew members have apparently defected from Castro's tyranny. No United States personnel participated. No United States government airplanes of any kind participated. These two planes, to the best of our knowledge, were Castro's own Air Force planes, and according to the pilots, pilots they took off from Castro's own Air Force field. I have here a picture of one of Lane. It has the markings of the Castro Air Force right on the tail, which everyone can see for himself. One of the planes is at a Miami airfield. It is identified as a B-26 attached to the exiled Cuban brigade. Castro's B-26s have no nose guns. The pilot is identified from a newspaper picture as a member of the brigade. The airstrike he took part in was intended to destroy Castro's Air Force. Two more are planned. Castro has been dealt a serious blow, but his entire Air Force has not been destroyed. The crucial fact is three jet trainers are untouched. Uh, official United States propaganda. The airstrike has humiliated the United States before the world. It has humiliated Adlai Stevenson, who did not know that what he told the UN was not the truth. The United States reacts to the world outcry against the bombing. The other two airstrikes are postponed. This decision leaves Castro with three undamaged jets. These jets will be a key to the failure of the invasion. Sunday, April 15th. The exile leaders do not know the invasion fleet is already at sea. Me esperaron en Nueva York en la escalería del avión 
awaiting me at the steps of the plane that brought me from Miami were two people who identified themselves as officials of the American agency. They took me to a private room, and in a short while, the other leaders of the Revolutionary Council arrived. From there, we entered two cars and were driven to Philadelphia, where we took an immigration department plane. We arrived at an unoccupied airport somewhere in Florida. At that moment, we didn't know which airport it was. It was taken to a house, and an armed guard was placed around. For the next 48 hours, the Cuban exile leaders will be kept under guard in Florida, in this house, while 90 miles away, an invasion is being carried out in their name. Dawn, Monday, April 17th. Bay of Pigs, Cuba. The first units of the brigade reached the beach without opposition. Among them is Humberto Diaz Aguilas of the 2nd Battalion, H Company. This is the way the battle began at Playa Larga. Three men went forward as an observers to look for militiamen. Suddenly, they found two. They said, stop. The militiamen answered, stop. Then a soldier from the rear yelled, we are an army of liberation. We came to fight communism. The militiamen answered, fatherland of death, long left Fidel Castro, and the shooting began. You are looking at film shot on the invasion beach by German and Cuban cameramen. In Havana, as the morning goes on, Castro begins to react to the invasion. Those who can be trusted are armed. Castro takes personal command. The roads out of Havana are clogged with troops moving up to the invasion beach. But in the first hours, the brigade pushes in. Castro has not yet been able to bring up his tanks and heavy guns. The first communique of the brigade, issued by a Madison Avenue public relations office, reports satisfactory progress. Over the beach are 12 B-26s providing air cover. Shortly after dawn, they are attacked by the three Castro jets that survived Saturday's airstrike. Five of them are shot down. The brigade's two supply ships and its communications ship are sunk. Within a few minutes, the men on the beach have lost their air cover and their supplies. Now, Castro can bring up his tanks without fear of air attack. And he can bring up thousands of his milicianos. By afternoon, Castro is pressing the brigade hard. How are they to survive? Where are they to get help? Some expect it to come from the underground. There is no uprising, there is no sabotage, there is no help from the underground for the brigade. For the next 48 hours, the men on the beach take a terrible pounding. They wait for help. None comes. 
They say they have been promised air support by their American advisors. Washington says none was ever promised. Only one thing is clear. The brigade is being driven into the sea. Its only hope of survival is United States military intervention. On Tuesday night, there is a reception at the White House to introduce Congress to the new cabinet. Leaders of both parties are there. Next day, the society pages will call it one of the events of the season. The president leaves early, goes to another part of the White House, where he confers into the night with key advisors. CIA Deputy Director Richard Bissell had come to the president with a desperate last-minute appeal. He knew that the president had said there would be no intervention. But he now said the brigade was doomed unless the United States intervened, at least with air cover, from the Navy task force that was standing off the beach. Admiral Burke, speaking for the Pentagon, favored the intervention. Secretary of State Rusk opposed it. The risk, he said, was too great. If we now openly intervene, we would probably endanger our entire Latin American position. And it would be an invitation to Khrushchev to step in. The president said he would make his decision within the next few hours. At dawn, the president makes his decision. Later, he tells it to the members of the Revolutionary Council, who have been flown from Florida. President Kennedy was very firm. He repeated three times, Americans shooting Cubans, no, no, no. The president was very upset, and he wanted to explain to us why he had allowed the invasion to take place after he had decided against U.S. military support. He told us that on the day of April 13, he sent a message to the project chief watching the brigade get ready to sail for Cuba. He asked this man, whose name was Jack Haskins, if he still felt the brigade could win by fighting alone. President Kennedy showed us a copy of the reply signed by Haskins. This document informed the president that the brigade could overthrow the Castro regime without U.S. help. The president looked very angry, and he told us he had relied on such advice in making the decision to send the brigade to Cuba. On the beach of the Bay of Figs, fighting continues. The brigade has no food, almost no ammunition, no hope of help from within Cuba or from outside. At 3.45 p.m. Wednesday, April 19th, resistance ends. All those who are not killed are taken prisoner. In less than 72 hours, Castro has destroyed the brigade. The American plan, hence framed and backed invasion of Cuba, is now a total failure. The failure at the Bay of Pigs was not merely the failure of the Cuban exiles. It was a failure of United States policy, which led to a failure of United States power. Clearly, the United States had the naked power to destroy Castro, but it could not ignore world opinion and use this power. It could not risk the repercussions that might follow the slaughter of Cubans and the occupation of Cuba by United States forces, could not risk the possible escalation the nuclear war. One alternative that suggested itself was indirect intervention 
carried out secretly under CIA supervision. The CIA solution was a carefully controlled military operation. It ignored, for the most part, the underground inside Cuba, which could not be controlled. Left-wing former Castro supporters, considered politically unreliable, were shut off from participation. No real effort was made to bring about an uprising of the Cuban people. The divided and mercurial Cuban exile leaders were felt to be undependable and all real control was taken out of their hands. The CIA put its faith in the brigade, small, politically reliable, controlled by United States agents. An attempt was made to use the brigade and the Cubans as an instrument of United States policy. The tactics were reminiscent of the days of United States big stick diplomacy. But Fidel Castro did not collapse at the first sign of opposition, as many Latin American dictated in the past. As a result, the Cuban exile brigade was destroyed on the beach, while the Cuban exile leaders were held in CIA custody, and the United States task force stood by helplessly. This was probably the low point, the worst moment, for John F. Kennedy in his three years in the White House. As president, he took full responsibility for this failure of United States policy this misuse of United States power, although the total blame was clearly not his. Welcome back, and uh, Welcome back. Uh, that was a uh, documentary from the 1960s uh, news report uh, on uh, the failed uh, Bay of Pigs under uh, the John F. Kennedy administration, an attempt to uh, use mercenaries uh, to overthrow uh, the government uh, in Cuba, uh, which was a abysmal, disastrous failure on the part of the United States. And of course, uh, created uh, tensions between uh, the Kennedy administration and the uh, Central Intelligence Agency, uh, which many feel uh, led uh, to his assassination in uh, 1963, uh, just uh, two and a half years later. And uh, right now we want to turn to a rare archival interview uh, with Fidel Castro uh, being interviewed by Lisa Howard, then of uh, ABC News. Uh, Lisa Howard, of course, uh, very prominent at the time, uh, ABC News anchor uh, who uh, served as a back channel for communication uh, between the Kennedy administration and uh, the Fidel Castro administration in Cuba. Let's listen in. Here is reporter Lisa Howard. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We thought you might want to hear some of the events surrounding my interview with Fidel Castro. We filmed the interview on April 24th in a suite at the Hotel Riviera in Havana. The Prime Minister's interpreter asked to see my questions in advance, but I explained that this was not customary in our country. Fidel Castro made no request to see my questions prior to the interview. I did type the major questions and presented them to the interpreter two minutes before the interview for reference purposes. During the interview, you will notice that Prime Minister Castro refers to this typed list as he follows my questions. The voice of the Cuban interpreter, Dr. Rene Viejo, was inaudible at times, 
So we've replaced him with an American interpreter. But Fidel Castro's answers have not been altered or edited in any manner. The interview was filmed by a Cuban crew. The sound and film quality are not as good as we would wish, but technically we were not filming under ideal conditions. As for the content, that you may judge for yourself. And now, an interview with Fidel Castro. Mr. Castro, were the missiles placed in Cuba because Khrushchev wanted them here or because you asked for them? In other words, in this situation, where did the initiative lie? Dile que aunque yo considero que no es el momento este de hacer un recuento pormenorizado. Tell her that I do not feel that this is the right moment to hold a detailed discussion on those historic events. However, she must also understand that at the same time, I'm extremely interested that all those details should become known. But tell her the following. After a few days, the Soviet and the Cuban governments both realized that we had to take certain measures because of the imminence of an invasion of the country that we felt had been planned and was going to be carried out. These measures had to come from the idea of persuading the aggressors that an invasion of Cuba would inevitably lead to a third world war. It was on the strength of that conviction that we took the de facto measures we took. We did not waste time with mere words. We merely had to stop the possibility of aggression. From that point of view, you can say that it was simultaneous action on the part of both governments. Dr. Castro, looking back on the October crisis with hindsight, do you think it was wise to have permitted the missiles to be placed on Cuban soil in the first place? Tell her that looking backwards and placing ourselves in the same circumstances as those of the time, I still feel that it was correct. Why? Ya le dije anteriormente que nosotros partíamos de la necesidad de tomar medidas I had already told you earlier that we began with the need to take certain measures in order to force the United States to put aside their ideas of invading Cuba. The fact that aggression was being prepared was made obvious later and was proved by no less a person than the chairman of the Counter-Revolutionary Council himself. Surely that is the best proof that anyone could expect or offer. What is the purpose of the Soviet troops that now remain on Cuban soil? Do you, do you really feel that this large, a military presence is necessary for the defense of the island? <laughs> Tell her that if they call troops, the technicians that are still in Cuba at this moment, that's an entirely different thing. 
But you must explain to her that these experts and these technicians are here in our interest, in the interest of Cuba. We are having both our personnel and our armed forces trained by these technicians. I consider, and you must make her understand this, that in the present circumstances, and until we are truly and sincerely assured of a policy of peace towards us, we will have need of those technicians to train our personnel and our armed forces. Are you telling me, Dr. Castro, that there are no Soviet troops and armaments in Cuban soil? You call Soviet troops. We call it technical. You understand? And really, they are training our troops. Is clear? Yes. Really, they are training our troops. They are as instructors of our troops. That is the truth. And they are not Soviet troops themselves. They are Soviet technical. I think that if we are attacked, those technical are going to fight with us against any aggression. No member of the communist bloc can ignore the ever-widening ideological schism between Red China and Soviet Russia. With Masi Tung's emphasis on war as a useful instrument of national policy, and Mr. Khrushchev's conviction that the world must develop along lines of peaceful coexistence. As between these two schools of thought, where do you stand, sir? Es cierto que hay algunos, algunas diferencias entre los puntos de vista de la dirección. Yes, it is true. There are certain differences between the points of view of the leaders of the Soviet Union and the leaders of the People's Republic of China. But I do not believe that those differences of view are in any way different from those that exist between, for example, de Gaulle or Kennedy. I believe that there is no absolute or insoluble contradiction between the views expressed by the Soviet Union and the views expressed by the People's Republic of China. And I do not believe for one minute, nor could I accept or be convinced, that the policies of China are intended to set up war as part of a national policy. Since that is what I believe, then obviously, our position must be to struggle in order to strengthen and improve the relations between these two great countries of the socialist camp. That is our position. It has often been reported that your alliance with the communists inside Cuba is a precarious one. And in January of 1962, you denounced the Cuban communists for shunting aside the fetalistas and taking all the top posts for themselves. Uh, what is the situation now today in Cuba between the Fidelistas and the old line communists? Tell her that as the revolution advances, the unity of all the revolutionaries becomes greater 
and stronger every day. The criticisms that we leveled at first against the sectarian positions that existed in the country were intended merely to overcome and to correct certain mistakes that at that time divided us. Once we've overcome those mistakes, then the unity among all the revolutionaries in Cuba today is greater than it ever was before. Uh, I have heard that in the United States speak many times about division between old and young communists. I can tell you that it is only a theory. Not a theory. A theory. That is not true. If somebody in the United States is thinking to solve our problem based in that division, it's a mistake. Do you understand? And do you think that you are the people of the United States understand my English? I think they will. Dr. Castro, in an interview in Le Monde, you criticized the leaders in the Soviet satellite countries for their total subservience to Moscow. Are you able to be any more independent when you are almost totally dependent on Moscow for your economic survival? Really? <clears throat> Tell her that I don't know whether she's aware of the fact that when those interviews were published in the French newspaper Le Monde, I made a clarification right away. I stated that I had given no interview to any reporter of that newspaper. We did hold an informal conversation at the home of the director of the newspaper Revolution. And during that conversation, we talked of many subjects. But there were no translators present while we were talking. And since the reporter did not know Spanish very well, many of the subjects that we did refer to in our conversation were misunderstood by the reporter, and he then published them in a completely different way from the way in which we had discussed them at the home of the director of the newspaper. It was that misunderstanding on his part that misled the readers. I rephrase my question. In reality, I rejected that. Let me just so ask this then. Do you feel? I say I will rephrase my question and ask you, do you feel that Cuba has any chance of being independent of Moscow when you are almost totally dependent on Moscow for your economic survival? Dile que a nosotros, la Unión Soviética nunca nos puso condiciones políticas para brindar ayuda económica. Tell her that as far as we are concerned, the Soviet Union never attached any political conditions whatsoever to the economic assistance she offers us. It is true, we received and we are still receiving assistance. But this is assistance that is basically economic and it comes primarily from the Soviet Union and we are extremely grateful for the help. But I repeat, that assistance has never been sent to us with any conditions. You can tell her too that in the United States they use certain slogans, certain cliches certain ideas 
that they accept almost as though they were axioms or truisms. But I believe that what is thought in the United States and the way things are analyzed there will finally lead them to understand exactly how and why Cuba is acting as she is. We are merely and completely exercising our rights to self-determination. Cuba now finds itself isolated in the hemisphere, no longer on speaking terms with most Latin American countries, the victim of an economic blockade, and with almost all of your support coming from ports six and 7,000 miles away. Can you, Dr. Castro, possibly continue to exist as a viable economy in this isolated atmosphere? Yes, it is true. It is entirely true. We are the victims of a great economic blockade. We are the victims of a general program of isolation on the part of a powerful nation. Ahora bien, sin embargo, aunque con algunas dificultades, nosotros hemos podido ir... But anyway, despite all this, we have met the difficulties. We have overcome many of these obstacles. And despite all this, again, we are sure that we will manage to get ahead. Dr. Castro, since you assume power, Nearly 300,000 people have fled the island, and the recent emigrants have been doctors, lawyers, teachers, as well as workers. How do you account for this exodus, and the exodus that is still continuing? <clears throat> Tell her that I think her figures are, well, shall we say, exaggerated. Not that many have left the island, nor is it true that they were all rich or all poor. The majority of the Cubans that have left the island were of the higher and middle classes. They were people who in the past occupied high posts. But furthermore, remember that from Cuba to the United States, there has always been a very great current of emigration. However, before the revolution, there was a limit set to the number of Cubans that could enter your country. After the revolution, there was no limit. There was no quota to the Cuban emigration to the states. I am convinced that if the doors of all the other Latin American republics were to be allowed to open for completely free emigration to the United States of America, more people would leave those countries than have so far left Cuba for the United States. I'll go further. I'll give you an example. Take Puerto Rico, for instance. The United States constantly argues and says that in Puerto Rico, they enjoy a very high standard of living, that there is set up a very sound social and political system. And yet, we know that more than one million Puerto Ricans have fled from their island to the United States of America. Now, if we're going to judge the system or the state of a country on the strength of the number of persons that leave or escape from that country to go somewhere else, then we must realize that Puerto Rico is the worst country of all.
But perhaps I should have phrased it differently. Many of the most recent immigrants, and I saw many of them in Miami, uh, were not people of money. And many of them had originally been with the revolution. Dice que ella vio en Miami alguna gente, por ejemplo, que era que eh, al principio había estado con la revolución y que algunos no eran gente de dinero. How do you explain that immigration? Bueno, porque efectivamente hay alguna gente que va quiere emigrar a Estados Unidos en busca de un mayor estándar de vida. Well, because there are some people who desire to emigrate to the United States in search of a better standard of living, perhaps. And also, there are cases of persons who, because of disagreements with the revolution, decided to leave the island, to go to foreign countries. But in many cases, that argument is a mere pretext. The political pretext is merely added. The true reason underlying their emigration is economic. Now, I can assure you that those who left the island before the revolution were purely the poorer classes. That was prior to the revolution. The emigration that followed the revolution, on the whole, is the emigration of the higher classes. When the revolution occurred in the United States of America, for example, don't forget, there were many Americans who left your country and who went to Canada. They were people who didn't like the American way of life. They were people who didn't agree with the independence of the United States. Dr. Castro, the United States and other nations of the OAS are deeply concerned about the exporting of your revolution to other nations in the hemisphere. The training of subversive agents, the sending of subversive material throughout the hemisphere. And in fact, the San Jose meeting pledged to stop the flow of men, funds, arms, and propaganda to other nations of the hemisphere from Cuba. Why do you feel at this early and very difficult stage of your own development that it's necessary to export your revolution to other nations throughout Latin America? Dile que yo creía que era al revés. Tell her that I thought it was the other way round. I had uh, thought that it was those countries that were more concerned with exporting counter-revolution to Cuba rather than we to them. Tell her, too, that there is no proof in existence that we have sent weapons or arms to any other country of Latin America in order to start revolutions there. On the other hand, we do have thousands of proofs that the arms and the weapons sent by the United States and many other countries into Cuba have all been intended to raise counter-revolutions here in Cuba, in our island. That is the truth of the story. Ask her why they always look at things from a different angle. If they want to know what we think, we'll tell them. We think that revolutions cannot be exported. We believe that revolutions either do occur or they don't occur. 
If conditions of an objective nature are conducive to the revolution, then the revolution will take place in that country. Furthermore, there has also to be an adequate degree of political awareness in the people of a country so that they are able to carry out such a revolution. But that you cannot export any more than you can export counter-revolutions. Now I ask myself a question. If a country feels that it has the right to export counter-revolutions, what right has that country to deny another country equal rights to export revolutions? My point is, are you exporting counter-revolution? The San Jose meeting, the San Jose meeting pledged to stop the flow of arms, men, funds, and materiel subversive from Cuba to other nations. Now, why do you think they made such a pledge? Are you exporting revolution? Are you not exporting revolution? Entonces, ¿por qué cree usted que la conferencia de San Jose en Costa Rica hizo el compromiso de evitar el flujo de armas, propagandas y hombres? Ella la pregunta concreta que quiere hacer es si está usted exportando o no la revolución. No podemos estar exportando algo que no se puede exportar. We cannot be exporting something that cannot be exported. So your answer is that you are not training men and you are not sending arms or material to other countries to create revolutions. Well, there is one thing you must bear in mind. She spoke of propaganda. That's one thing. We do have radio stations. We do have speeches of the revolutionary leaders and information from Cuba itself. And we make all this known in Latin America. But this is something very similar to what occurs with the radio stations in the United States, in Florida, for example. And many other parts of the country. Where you broadcast programs, where you publish, where you make known the points of view of your country, of the United States of America. And when all is said and done, you know we do not possess the enormous resources of the United States government nor do we possess the training centers that the United States has. So we cannot compete with your country in the training of people from all over Latin America. But as a dedicated Marxist-Leninist, don't you feel that it's important and necessary to export your revolution? Isn't that part of your philosophy? Pero como un artista leninista dedicado, ¿no cree usted que es necesario exportar la revolución? ¿Cómo dice? Que no cree usted como un marxista leninista what I think is that the idea ought to be uh, uh, de 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 defended and divulgate the idea. And it is what you do too. And your idea, what about in the United States, your way of living, many of your ideas didn't come from Europe. There's a body of liberal opinion in the United States which contends that you turn to Soviet Russia because you have no alternative. Because by 1960, the United States had closed its doors to you. And they believe that if the United States could have accepted the expropriation, with, of course, a pledge by you for compensation, you would have remained with the West, or at least neutral. 
Are they correct? <clears throat> or was your revolution inevitably going to turn in this radical a direction? Dile que es cierto que al suspenderse la compra de azúcar a Cuba y cerrarse todas las puertas al comercio entre Cuba y Estados Unidos, a Cuba no le quedaba otra alternativa. Tell her that it is true that when the United States suspended the sugar quota of Cuba, when the United States closed all the doors to trade between Cuba and the United States, Cuba had no other alternative from the economic standpoint than to tighten its economic relations with the Soviet Union. She now wants to know what would have happened if those measures had not been taken, if the United States had accepted expropriation. Well, I don't know. But I don't believe that you can answer a question like Welcome back. And uh, <clears throat> that was uh, Fidel Castro being interviewed by Lisa Howard in April of 1963. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, this has been the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. Have a beautiful week.
that you're hearing because, like, uh, this will then all the amplifier. We haven't had a chance to get them really overhauled right here in America because they're, you know, that Bible, you know, they're making it Yo, man. 
Take off the new tick on your pants, okay? <laughs> 